Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'm not sure what it's like in your neck of the woods, but this week is the first full week of above-freezing weather we've had. And as much as I love the comfort of the dark, the gradually increasing daylight feels particularly welcome this year. I also feel the need to rub it in, just a little, that I happen to live in one of the few places that doesn't have to endure the horrors of switching on and off of daylight savings time. And with the spring equinox just around the corner, this Sunday in fact, it's a time commonly associated with birth, rejuvenation, and all things happy and bright. Not really the most fitting season for horror. Interestingly though, the spring equinox has also been associated with inducing literal March Madness, which has nothing to do with basketball, and even the opening of portals into hell. I guess even the bright and cheerful advent of spring is still fraught with a much darker side. Speaking of all things good and bright, a topic we tend to shy away from being a horror podcast and all, 
I have to say, I'm absolutely blown away after last week's call for support. To be honest, I always feel a little awkward putting it out there. Requesting support. Especially since making a buck isn't at all why we do this. On the other hand, a financial support is also necessary to keep the show running, and especially growing. So, when I say I can't thank you enough to our new patrons, I truly mean it. Some amazing people stepped up to the plate in the last week with support for the show to help fill in the gaps left by these trying times. And to make sure everyone gets their proper due, I'll share their names over the next week or two. And again, believe me when I say it's an absolute privilege to speak them on the show. This week, our deepest, darkest, most disturbed thanks goes out to Izzy Garcia Nash, Tara Bates, and Christine Morin, a triumvirate of twisted terror files whose generosity breathes fetid life into our tainted tales. Thank you so much for your support. That boost in support takes us one step closer to bringing you even darker tales, and as I said last week, giving fair compensation to all those involved. On a very immediate and tangible level, it's made it possible to expand our voice roster diversity for an upcoming tale that you can hope to hear in the coming weeks. As a small, passion-driven show, every dollar makes a huge difference, and we appreciate it so much. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify is where you can get in on all of the action behind the veil and help support our little show. Tonight, we have a couple of shorter tales for you about the unlikely kindness of outcasts and a psychopath on wheels. Our first story this evening comes from Alpheus Williams. Alpheus Williams, curmudgeon, pagan, pantheist, loves his wife, nature, good whiskey, and dogs, lives and writes in a small coastal village in Australia with his wonderful wife and their border collie. His works have appeared in the Molotov Cocktail Winners Anthology, Baron Magazine, Storky, The Right Launch, The Fabulist Magazine, Shotgun Honey, Bristol Noir, Bath Flash Fiction, Hellhound Magazine, et al. He has been long-listed in Bath Flash Fiction, Retreat West Comp, and Wigleaf, and shortlisted in Baron Magazine Flash Contest. Two stories have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize in 2021. Children of the Night, join me for Alpheus Williams' Woman in the Woods. Her cries shattered silence, chased owls from perches and small creatures back into the forest. Livestock panicked, broke through the enclosures and ran into the night. 
wolves howled in the distance. Winged shadows flickered across the sky. The moon and Venus flattered night with their light. When it was over, her strength was spent. She sighed, closed her eyes, and fell into a deep sleep. The midwife bathed her with cool water and vinegar, then washed the afterbirth from the baby. She could see it clearly now. The child was strong and healthy, and perfect in all ways but three. She had pale, opalescent skin, feathery snow-white hair, and blood-red eyes. She swaddled the child and covered its face. The midwife understood the fear and superstition that governed the nearby villagers. It was a bad time. Stock was disappearing. There were rumors of wolfmen and creatures wandering the edge of the woods. She knew the villagers. Felt their fear. Understood how dangerous it was. A child such as this, on such a night, was an omen of bad things coming. Fear and panic had burned people and houses for less. She did what she had to do. She checked the young mother was resting, explained to her husband that the child was stillborn. She would take it away to be buried. It had been a long night. Venus was at the top of the trees and would be dropping behind the mountains soon. Her journey near over, the midwife was bone weary. She came to the rise in the forest where a large flat rock and a clearing stretched out beneath the sky. She unswaddled the child, laid it on the cold flat rock. It was the way of things. She turned, walked away, didn't look back. The forest swallowed her up. The child, naked and alone, glittered like a red-eyed pearl in the moonlight. Large black wings descend from above, breaks the silence with raggedy, raspy cry, settles at the child's head, stands sentinel. It isn't long before the long, tall woman, twisted and bent, comes from the shadows of the trees. She knows this rock, knows this place. It is where it started for her so many years ago. And it is where it'll start for this beautiful opalescent child, glittering in the flickering light of night. She knew this was coming. She read the signs. She plucks the child from the rock, feels its cold skin, lifts her cloak and tunic, places it to warm nakedness, and disappears into the woods. Silent, shadow-like, the crow takes wing, flies overhead and leads the way. The boy had scattered breadcrumbs as they entered the woods so they could find their way back to the cottage. But the birds had eaten them, and now they were lost. It was just as well, because the stepmother was planning to murder them if they returned from the forest again. The red-eyed woman knew this. She knew most things. Even now, the crow is perched in a branch of a towering pine tree and watches over the two children. She stands at the doorway, watches them through the crow's eyes. Their little bodies huddled together for warmth on a flat rock in a clearing in the deep wood. They will wake soon. She lights a fire, puts bread in the oven. The smell will wake them. 
They will follow the crow in the powdery trail of stars. They will see her little cottage behind the mist rising from the pond in the soft pre-dawn light. The frost on the cottage will look like icing sugar. And the little boy will think the house is made of cake. The sister, younger, is more sensible and cautious. This is a good thing. She can't understand why her brother hadn't marked their trail with pebbles and kept the breadcrumbs to eat. But she didn't mention it to him. He is her big brother, stubborn and dismissive at times. But he loves her and tries to look after her. The boy runs toward the cottage. His sister grabs for his wrist, trying to restrain him. He shakes her off. He's hungry. She follows reluctantly. It's an illusion. The cottage is made of timber, weathered and aged to deep brown. The glistening sparkle isn't sugar and icing, but frost. It had been a cold night. But there may be things to eat here. There is a garden, neatly furrowed and maintained. The yard is fenced by tight wicker and brush to keep the chickens safe from wandering out. A dog in the doorway rises to its feet and watches their approach. Goats stare golden-eyed from their pens. Smoke drifts lazily from the chimney. The smell of baking bread, rich with rosemary, defeats caution and they surrender to it. A crow swoops close enough to muss the boy's straw-colored hair. It startles him. He falls to the ground and covers his head. The crow caws harsh and shrill, and the little girl thinks it sounds as if the crow is laughing. A woman steps from the doorway. The crow lands on her shoulder, takes a crust of bread from her fingers. She wears a dark gray cloak. The hood hides her face in shadow. Come inside, says the woman. There is food. The boy stands and brushes his pant leg. He eyes the woman suspiciously. Are you a witch? He asks. Some would say so, says the woman. Why would I deny it? There are worse things. Then I will not come in, he says, hands on his hips and thrusting his chin. Then don't, says the woman. She turns to the girl. And you? The little girl hesitates and nods. The boy reaches to stop her. The dog growls. The girl sidesteps and slithers past him. The boy waits in the yard. He screams for his sister to come out of the house. The dog approaches him. He pats the dog. The dog likes that. The boy is hungry. His stomach hurts, growls and gurgles. He sags at the knees with the smell of bread and honey. His mouth moistens. Soon, the girl emerges from the doorway with a slice of thick bread dripping with butter and honey. She said to give this to you, says the girl. She says to stop making so much noise, or she will sick the dog on you and tell the crow to peck your eyes out. She says to tell you that you can come in when you want, but that she won't ask you again. He reaches out for the bread. The girl turns and enters the house before he can stop her. He squints his eyes and studies the offering, bringing it up to his nose and smells it. His eyes dampen at the corners with want. He tears off a tiny piece and gives it to the dog. The dog eats it, licks the dripping butter and honey from his fingers, wags its tail, and looks for another morsel. When there's none on offer, it returns to the front landing 
curls up and goes to sleep. The boy takes a small bite. His body screams for more. He yields. Wolf's the rest. The energy is immediate, intense. He swoons. The sensation is powerful. He thinks he may have been poisoned. He walks to the doorway and looks inside. A fire burns on the hearth. The girl sits at a table eating porridge from a large bowl. Steam rises from a knob of warm bread fresh from the oven, and there are bowls of cream, butter, berries, and honey. The woman sits at the end of the table. She pushes the hood back from her head. She is younger than he supposed, but her face is pale as moonlight, smooth as marble. Short, shaggy hair, white as snow, frames her face. Her eyes are luminous and redder than blood. The boy gasps in horror and stumbles back to the doorway. His sister looks up from her porridge. He notices a smear of honey glistening on her chin. Run, he shouts to her. Don't be silly, she says. Sit down and eat your breakfast. Weeks pass. The boy and girl help around the little farm. They feed the chickens. The red-eyed woman teaches them how to milk the goats and churn butter. They learn about herbs and plants for cooking and teas. They are well-fed and happy. The red-eyed woman tends to an old woman, bent and crippled, who sits by the fire in a rocking chair and sleeps most of the day. The crow scolds and torments them while they work, but there's no menace in it. Sometimes the boy and girl take the dog, drag a sled behind them, and collect wood for the fire. The crow follows. The red-eyed woman explains how easy it is to become lost in the woods, but the dog and the crow always find their way back. One evening, as they sit around the fire after supper, the red-eyed woman tells them that their time there is short and they must make their way home soon. But our stepmother will murder us, says the boy. True, says the red-eyed woman. But your stepmother has been caught by the villagers, killing sheep in the night and drinking their blood. So they hanged her and burned her body. And our father? He misses you and thinks you're dead. He grieves, says the red-eyed woman. So he should, says the girl. Yes, so he should, she says. But he is a weak and broken man. He took the passing of his first child very hard. And the passing of your mother even harder. You are all he has left. Go to him. He hasn't long. A short time later in the early morning, the red-eyed woman takes them through the forest to the clearing with the flat rock. Follow the path, she says. Go left at every fork and you will find the village well before nightfall. When you get there, talk to the midwife. Ask her to tell you of your mother's firstborn some 20 years ago. She will remember. She gives them food for their journey and a hug to send them off, then disappears into the woods. Witches aren't so bad, says the girl. No, says the boy. Those two aren't so bad, much better than our stepmother. They walked along the path, taking the left forks at all times. They arrive at the village well before dark, just as the red-eyed woman said. They will tell their tale of a house made of cake, and how they escaped a wicked witch. The villagers will scoff and laugh and pursue the issue no further. Better to tell lies that are dismissed as such, rather than truths that could incur further interests.
The red-eyed woman waits by the fire. Her eyes glaze over and she sees the village. Stock appears. Nearby, shepherds find blood-drained bodies of sheep lying along the edge of the great forests. The children have buried their father who has recently passed. The villagers dig him up and burn his body. Fear is rampant. The midwife visits them at their father's house, warns them of the growing danger. They waste little time in making their escape. Looking back from the edge of the forest, they watch the small cottage burst into flames and the silhouettes of angry villagers flickering in the torchlight. They make their way beneath the moon, taking the right path at every fork until they come to a clearing with a large flat rock. Here they wait. The red-eyed woman rises from her chair. She pats the shoulder of the old twisted woman nodding before the fire. I will send the crow, she says. That was Alpheus Williams' Woman in the Woods, as read by Danielle Hewitt. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the people can be just as scary as any horror story. When she isn't recording, she is tending to the two small children living in her house. They just won't stop screaming at night. Danielle is a graphic designer by trade, spending most nights photoshopping horror scenes out of your nightmares. Thank you, Danielle. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Eric C. Martin. Eric C. Martin was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and raised listening to tales of true-life terror about Sam Shepard and the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. 
Eric has published three novels for young readers and enjoys penning horror stories for adult audiences. His short fiction has appeared in Coffin Bell, Haunted MTL, The Potato Soup Journal, Frontier Tales, A Story of 100 Words, and various other anthologies. He is a member of the San Diego Writers and Editors Guild and the SCBWI. You can find him on Twitter at Eric C. Martin or at ericcmartin.com. He currently lives and writes in San Diego. Listen with me, children of the night, to Eric C. Martin's A Night at Crystal Skates, a Tales to Terrify original. If you ignore the road closed signs and head up Carrion Hill from Goring, you'll find a defunct roller skating rink in the middle of nowhere, overlooked by a burned out Victorian and a cozy yet rustic cottage on the edge of the woods. I hope you don't, though. That's where I live. And I'm a man who likes to be alone with my thoughts, with my garden, with my skating. I crank up the generator and let myself in the back door, coming straight from my garden. I'm still wearing a utilitarian coverall and carrying the sharpened spade I use to break the topsoil and tear up roots. I set it down next to the locker where I keep my skates. Dust covers everything except my locker and the spot on the bench where I sit. I really need to clean. My grandfather would never have tolerated such slovenliness. But all this is mine now. I'm good at gardening and trapping, and not so much at cleaning. I lace up my size 15s and glide towards the rink. I flip a switch and Crystal Skates comes alive with red, green, and blue light. The disco ball casts glittering stars across every surface. I skate to the DJ booth. The record, Grandpa was old school, is all queued up. I press two buttons and the record drops and starts to spin. The first notes of Dancing Queen pump out of the speakers. All my stress falls away. I skate. This is when all things come together. And I am perfect. The roller rink has been part of my life for as long as I can remember. My grandfather built it. My mother, Crystal, yes, Grandpa named the rink after her, ran the concessions right over there. <laughs> she taught me to skate. Grandpa had been a hard man. He demanded perfection and was quick to punish failure with a strap or a belt or long hours in the wooden crate. But he loved my mother and me a lot in a very close and physical way. Grandpa died under mysterious circumstances when I was eight. Mom was devastated. She couldn't understand how he had managed to get his head under the lawnmower like that. She died in a fire only a few months later. We'd moved into the main house. She started having Connor Slayton over a lot. He was a young man from Goring. Mom called him a handyman and said he was going to do some renovations. The work never began, and then a fire broke out one night when they were in Mom's bedroom together. I was hurt in the fire. My face was burned pretty bad. Folks speculated that the fire had been deliberately set, 
you know, folks can talk and no one can ever prove anything. I was taken to a hospital when my burns had healed as much as they were going to. I went to a different hospital and spent the next 10 years there. I won't bore you with the details, but we'll just say things happened. I did a lot of good work there. When I was free, I came home. Crystal Skates, Grandpa's house and the cottage were boarded up, but mostly just like I'd left them. Sure, there'd been some damage, you know, vandalism by teenagers. I fixed what I could. I got right back to living. And my garden thrives. Goring saw a mass exodus for the city. Today, it's as dead and abandoned as Crystal Skates. My only neighbor is Mr. Heilman, the old man who still runs the gas station. The road to the roller rink is overgrown and needed repair. I like it that way. A few years have gone by. Life is simple. I grow my own food. I trap. I skate. The record ends. Instead of familiar silence, I hear an engine rev. Someone is coming. Feeling panic, I, I shuck my skates and cram them back in the locker, turn off the lights, and shut off the generator. Who is it? The only person I interact with is Mr. Heilman, and we don't speak. I go at night and leave my gas cans when I need them refilled, and, and sometimes I leave a list. I want a few things from his store. He fills the order and leaves them out for me. I don't pay him. I have a lawyer somewhere who takes care of that. Could this be him, the lawyer? Maybe. I never met him, but they talk about him when I was in the hospital. I have a card somewhere. Why panic? <laughs> it's silly, really. I've become somewhat introverted over the years. Very introverted. My face is still scarred from the fire that killed my mother, and I'm a little self-conscious. Who arrives isn't the lawyer. It's much worse. It's teenagers. Five of them in a Jeep. Three boys, two girls. The Jeep comes in too fast and jerks to a stop on the side of the rink. The asphalt parking lot was reclaimed by nature years ago, but the suggestion of it remains. If I go out the back... They'll see me from where they stopped. I want to go out there and say, this is my property, no trespassing. I, I don't, though. I can't. Instead, I hide behind the concessions counter. Big hero I am. Sweat drips from my forehead onto the cracked tiles. I pray they don't come in. I keep all the entrances except the back door chained. Maybe they won't notice it. Almost as soon as I think it, the back door opens. I hear footsteps and rude laughter. Jack, this is creepy, says a pretty girl with brown skin and short curly hair. We passed a no trespassing sign. What if somebody's here? Jill, that sign would have fallen off if the weeds weren't holding it up. This place is abandoned. A perfect location to fill something for YouTube, said a blonde boy wearing a purple and yellow high school football jacket. If you're scared, go wait in the car. That old guy at the gas station warned us not to come here, the pretty girl Jill says. But I'm not going to wait in the car by myself. One boy with shaggy brown hair and carrying a 12-pack of beer says, <laughs> I'll wait with you. He makes a thrusting motion with his pelvis. Gross, Jill says. You wish, Faz. The whole exchange makes me wish I had a better hiding place. I know about sex. I sometimes get magazines like Cosmopolitan from Mr. Heilman. I've read the articles. The whole thing gives me an uncomfortable feeling. And... What worse way to be reminded that I'm ugly than to see pretty people? I could tell after a minute Jack is the alpha, fit, a jock judging by his jacket. But he seems to be there with Jill. Oh, even I see the humor in that. Mom used to read to me from a book of nursery rhymes. 
The other girl is blonde with long straight hair, a cheerleader type. They call Anne. She hangs on a sneering dark-haired boy named Cal. Another jock, but not the leader. And the odd man out is a shaggy drunk. They call him Faz. Stupid name, if you ask me. Jack takes out a cell phone. I know what they are, of course, but I know, too, that there's no cell service here or even in Goring. But they used to have a cell tower, but it was taken out of service years ago. It looks like he's taking pictures, uh, video. Hey, in my search for cool abandoned places, we've come to Crystal Skates, an abandoned roller rink in the middle of BFE. Let's look around, he says into the camera. The camera has a bright light that I desperately wish he would turn off. Lights don't work, Cal says, flipping the switch for the rink lights. Well, I saw a generator by the door. We came in, says Jack. Maybe it still has some gas. They go outside. Cal, fill me. Okay, are you rolling? Jack's voice takes on a deeper tone. We found an old generator behind the rink. Oh, this is weird. It's warm. No way, says Faz. Cut it out, Jack, Jill says. No, really. Let's see if it'll crank up. Just a few seconds later, I hear it start. (laughs) My generator is really reliable. Someone finds the lights, the disco ball spins, and the rink comes to life. Wow, says Anne. They gaze about in amazement. Cal finds the DJ booth. He takes the record, my record, off the turntable. Abba? I watch in horror as he wings it like a frisbee across the rink. It smashes against the wall. My favorite record. My mom's favorite. Abba sucks. He looks through the stack of records. These all suck. Well, don't smash them, Anne says, echoing my thoughts. We'll take them. I could sell them on eBay. Let's look around some more, Jack tells him. He moves towards the lockers. This place is in pretty good shape, Jill says. It's just dusty. Well, this locker isn't dusty. Neither is this spot on the bench, Faz observes. Damn his keen eyes. Well, that's creepy. Like someone's been here, says Anne. Cal put his arm around her. He says something I can't hear. They drift away from the group towards the alcove where the arcade used to be. All the games are gone now except for Zevius and Mr. Dew and the joysticks on both of them. There's also an old air hockey table, but it hasn't worked right for ages. Faz opens a locker. My locker. Roller skates. Do you think that old man at the gas station comes up here and skates around? Jill asks. Not wearing these skates, Faz says. They're huge, size 15. That old guy might wear a 10, maybe. He takes a long pull from his beer, belches, then throws the can towards the concession seating. I need to take a piss. There are bathrooms. I saw a sign, Jill says. No need a bathroom. He sets one of my roller skates on the floor, stands over it, begins to unbuckle his jeans. Don't do that, Jill says. Jack, tell him to stop. Oh, dude, I bet you can't fill it all the way to the top, Jack says. I got five bucks, says I can, says Faz. You're on. I see a stream of pee. I hear it filling my roller skate. I see red. Fire. I'm moving, but not in control. I'm guided by a rage I thought I'd left behind. I come out of the shadows and step into the light of Jack's phone. Jill screams. Jack yells, holy shit. But drunk, shaggy, piss-boy Faz, so intent on defiling my prized possessions, doesn't notice. My spade is leaning against the locker. Then it's in my hand, but I don't remember picking it up. 
I see my skate filled with foul urine and this dumbass with his wiener out. I jam the sharp end of the spade into his throat. It cuts through flesh and bone, same as roots. He finally looks at me, amazed. He grabs his throat. Blood gushes forth and spurts. I pull back and jab him again and again. He falls, but I don't stop. Jack and Jill run screaming. My rage subsides. Wow, what did I do? The kid Jack not only dropped his keys, but his phone too. I scoop them up and chase after him. I figure I'll apologize and, and just ask him and the others to go. No point hiding now. Then I'll dig around for that lawyer's card. I think I might need him. This is when things get a little out of control. I feel partly to blame. I run past the arcade. Cal and Ann are on top of the air hockey table, completely sexing. Again, no personal experience in the area, but you know, magazines. I see Cal's pimply white butt bobbing up and down, and I lose it all over again. I didn't know I possessed such a deep-seated hanger. I mean, I did the work. Am I not cured? As I'm driving the sharp tip of my spade through Cal's spine and right through Anne's body beneath him, I realize I have more work to do. I'm so sorry, I say. But you have to admit that it's pretty rude of you to be sexing on my air hockey table. Anne seems to smile as blood gurgles out of her mouth. Something about her smug expression brings out the monster in me again. I yank the spade out of the teenager's bodies and bring it down again across her neck. And like Faz, her head comes off rather easily. Practice, I guess. Her head rolls off the table and comes to rest by my feet. She stares up at me, still grinning, still mocking me. What a bitch, I think. Okay. So all this happened, no going back. And really, they kind of deserved it. But it stops here. I'm going to find Jack and Jill, give them back their keys and phone, and just send them on their way. Consequences be damned. My vision goes dark, and then I see stars for a moment. My vision clears. Jack is standing there holding a rusty fire extinguisher. Take that, you freak! I'm dizzy. He hits me again, and I'm on one knee. I throw up my arm to defend my head and swing wild with the other hand. I connect with something and hear a thud and a tremendous crash. I lower my arm and look. Jack is dead. He's on the floor. The air hockey table, not in the greatest shape, collapsed on his head. What are the odds? I was just trying to skate. Well, Jill is still alive. Out of all of them, she had the best manners. She even tried talking Faz out of desecrating my prized skates. Maybe she'll understand. I exit the arcade alcove. Jill is standing by the back door like the one of the deer who eat clover from around the rink at sunrise. Trying not to startle her, I walk toward her at a measured, almost casual pace. To put her at ease, I smile a lot. Her eyes grow big as plates. She bolts, sprinting out of the building. I just want to give you the car keys, I shout. I guess she doesn't hear me. By the time I'm outside, she's halfway down the path to my house. All I can do is follow. You might not believe this next part, but I swear it is true. Here she is running, top speed, and I'm walking the whole time. But she never gets any further away from me. And she never seems to hear anything I say. She trips. I get a little closer and say, you might have sprained that. Here, let me help you. She drags herself to her feet and limps off. I watch Jill go into my cottage. I berate myself for not picking up. But I didn't expect company, uninvited or not. I open the door and carefully go inside. I know she's scared, and I have a lot of sharp gardening tools in my... She jumps out from behind the door, stabs me in the shoulder with a pair of hedge clippers. Damn it! Not careful enough! 
The car keys are in my hand. I drop them as I grip my shoulder to see if I'm bleeding. She sees the keys and scoops them up off the floor and runs back out. I seem to be okay. I consider staying right there and looking for my attorney's card, but I look at the hedge clippers and decide I need to make sure she's gone. I can't have a dangerous lunatic running around my property. I reach the parking lot as she's getting into the car. What happens next is really messed up. I'm just standing there. She takes forever to get the Jeep started. Then when she does, she stalls it out trying to get it in gear. At one point, I think she's going to run out of the Jeep and go back to my house. Well, that's the last thing I want. So I approach one more time, slowly, to see if she'll calm down enough to listen to me. Just as I'm nearing the front of the Jeep, she gets the engine running and manages to get the car into first gear. And then she tries to run me over. I can't make this stuff up. I've been hit in the head and stabbed. I'm a little wobbly and end up falling flat on my back. Oh, thank God the Jeep is so high or I would have been killed. She passes right over and keeps going. And then she's gone. Good riddance. I go back to my house and find my attorney's card. I, I call the number. There is a beep, but no message. I say who I am and that it's important he call me back, but I have no idea if I actually left a message or what. I find some back teen and clean up my cut, and then I wait for the police. Only the police never come. It is the oddest thing. Four people are dead, but I never hear another word about it. For a while, I leave the bodies alone, expecting cops any minute. But after a couple of days, they really start to stink. I bury them out in my garden. After a good washing, my roller skates are back in service. I'd like to go back to counseling. This little episode has shown me I have issues to work on still. But Goring doesn't have a counselor. I know from my magazines that people have therapy on computers now, but I don't have one of those. Maybe someday. I'll see if Mr. Heilman can get me a computer with an internet connection. Until then, I'm giving journaling a try. I have my garden and skating. Always skating. That was Eric C. Martin's A Night at Crystal Skates, as read by Stephen Gagan. Stephen Gagan was born and lives in the town of Winthrop on Boston's North Shore. A graduate of the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina, he spent the next seven years in the U.S. Navy as a mixed-gas diving and salvage officer. Stephen then joined the family insurance and tax preparation business. In his off time, his passions are sailing, cooking, and diving. He is the author of two books, Bravo 2 Sierra and Code Alpha, both military thrillers. He is also the author of several short stories and is working on his third novel. His two greatest adventures are diving on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1983 and participating in an expedition down to the RMS Titanic off Newfoundland, Canada, in 2001. Stephen is married to his wife, Grace, and has two children, Kyle and Amanda. Find out more about Stephen at his website, stephenrgagan.com. Thank you, Stephen.
Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we slash our way into your hearts with more Tales to Terrify.